Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All of the things that can happen when you don't step in will reinforce the learning that is so important for them to have in order to do better next time. Do you want to feel good about your parenting or your efforts or your love for your kid in this moment? Or do you want to have a kid who can do better for themselves? That was Jessica Leahy on Psychologist Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From Coast to Coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrun, Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. From sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Mighty and the Big Book of Activism. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries, but when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash P-O-T-C. ZocDoc.com slash P-O-T-C. Be sure to check out Praxis Continuing Education for their online trainings. Just go to the sponsors page of offtheclockpsych.com to link to Praxis, and there you'll find a discount code you can use for registration on any live training events. So check it out.
We're also affiliates with Dr. Rick Hansen's online neurodharma program and his Foundations of Wellbeing programs. And you can find out more about them at our website, offtheclockpsych.com, where you'll get a $40 discount. Yael here with Jill to talk about an episode where I got to interview Jessica Leahy, the author of a terrific book called The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. And I've long been a huge fan of Jess Leahy and all her work. And it was it was such a fun conversation because I think she really, in her writing and in her her speaking engagements, talks a lot about this idea that is so core to psychology, which is this paradox that with difficult, painful, messy experiences comes a lot of good. And what's so fun about that is that it's something that I talk a lot about in the context of working parenthood. And I just wanted to mention that I recently published a piece in Rick Hansen's Wise Brain Bulletin about this this very idea that happiness in working parenthood can come even in the messiest of experiences. And in Jess Leahy's work, she really talks about the opportunities that we can give our kids to fail so that they can grow. It feels kind of counterintuitive, but letting your kids kind of fall on their face and mess things up and figure things out in ways that are awkward and difficult to watch is actually good for them. Yeah, I loved this episode. And as you know, y'all, I'm a huge fan of Jess Leahy and the hashtag am writing podcast. And I was like, you know, fangirling, listening to the whole episode, and it went by so fast for me. It's a slightly longer episode, but your conversation was so rich, and you can really tell that Jess is so passionate about these topics, and it's contagious, you know, like listening to her. She's so knowledgeable. Um, it just, I, I loved it, and and I think part of what I love so much about it, it's like a little self-serving for me in that I get so much relief from almost having permission from an expert to let go as a parent. And, you know, to be able to say that not only are mistakes, failures, whatever you want to call them, okay, but they're necessary, that like they're actually beneficial to kids' development. And, you know, all of this pressure to be going to karate and Mandarin and violin lessons and everything else that, you know, she's really suggesting that this this is really not the way to go with these kids. And it just, I could like feel myself like exhale as I was listening to the episode. And I think it's going to be a really helpful one for parents and especially working parents. And I mean, really all parents dealing with this pandemic too right now. Yeah, yeah. A hundred percent. And, and one thing that I do just want to mention is that I think that this is a message that we adults, like whether or not you have kids, it's a really useful message, which is that when we fail, that's not, that's not the end of the story. It's just the beginning. It's, it's where learning happens. It's where growth happens and it can be uncomfortable, but that is the paradox in a nutshell that through those difficult kinds of experiences, because failure is difficult that's where the good stuff happens. And so I think that this is a message for parents. It's a message for kids. And it's really a message for, for anyone who wants to be learning and growing and building towards better things. So we hope you get a lot out of this episode. Jessica Leahy is an educator, speaker, mother, and writer, and author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. 
Among others, Jessica writes regularly for the New York Times, is a contributing writer at The Atlantic, is a commentator on Vermont Public Radio. She's one of the experts on the Parenting in Place Masterclass, and she's co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, Hashtag Am Writing. Welcome, Jess. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for the nice mention of our podcast. It's one of our labors of love, so I'm so glad you mentioned it. Yes, we. I'm a huge fan, and actually, so is one of the other co-hosts who introduced me to it, Joel Stoddard. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So I do a lot of parent coaching in my private practice, and I do also run a lot of the parent-oriented episodes on this podcast, so I was really intrigued to step into the perspective of a teacher who's also a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that combination, you actually don't see that much in the literature, so it's really a great contribution. I it also was, and I'm KJ, my co-host on the hashtag I'm writing podcast says, I'm not allowed to say this. I'm not allowed to say I'm super lucky, but, but it is true that when I came to writing, when I came to journalism, there wasn't a teacher slash parent writing on the national stage. And so I hit it at just at the right time. Um, and in fact, when another person came up after me, who was a counselor slash parent, like a school counselor slash parent. I'm like, grab this niche and run because you can own this if you want. And she did. And she, this, that's Phyllis Fagel. And she now, um, has a book called Middle School Matters, writes for the Washington Post and is just taking off as a speaker because those sort of combinations of being able to look at, you know, student achievement or, um, their growth or their social emotional learning from both the teacher side and the parent side is, it's a, it's a really interesting dual lens. And it's, uh, it's, for me, when I get to write, people are like, well, how do you decide, you know, how to have these topics that people are really interested in? And I'm like, well, because I'm interested in it. So it's worked pretty well for me. I'm I'm so happy to be able to write from this perspective. Well, and this is a little bit off topic, so I apologize to our listeners, but I'm just kind of curious. So I write about working parenthood. And so I'm, mm-hmm. as I'm sort of thinking about your days and your weeks, how do you manage teaching, writing, parenting, podcasting? How do you, how do you do that? There's a very easy answer to that, which is after I sold the gift of failure and I had a very short deadline for that, I realized I had to leave my full-time middle school teaching job. I was teaching um, seven distinct preps. Like there was no way that all of it was going to get done. And um, and on top of that, just as a side note, since my next book is about this, I was also a raging alcoholic. So I had to give up my teaching job. I also had to get sober. So I wrote The Gift of Failure post giving up my teaching job, which was devastating, and obviously getting sober, which is crazy. And you're not supposed to change much of anything in the first year you get sober. And of course, my whole life turned upside down. But I got really fortunate. I got really lucky. Again, I can hear KJ yelling at me in my vo- in my head. I went to go speak at a um, uh, an adolescent rehab, a rehab for adolescents who are inpatient, and realized, oh my gosh, wait a second. If these kids are here 24-7, they have to have an education program. So I became a part-time educator there, and I did that for five years. And my boss was just really great. He was very flexible. I tried to never ever, I travel a lot to, for speaking, or I did before COVID happened. And I just was really careful to never travel on that. We moved my day around. So it would be easiest for me to not travel on that day on a Friday. And um, that worked really, really well. And then sadly, last year, about a year and a half ago, the rehab closed to adolescents and opened the adolescent wing to adults because they, it just, 
it's not financial. It's so difficult to make that financially viable. So right now I am not teaching at all, which is a really weird place for me to be. But like I said, I wasn't doing it all. That whole like doing it all myth is really, um, I, okay. I could, I, yeah, I couldn't, there's no way I could be traveling, teaching, writing full time, you know, doing the podcast, all that stuff. So right now I'm not teaching at all. I, you know, I'm doing the um, online stuff, which is kind of teaching. It is teaching, I guess, but I miss the kids desperately. And mm-hmm. for me right now, the challenge is going to be, you know, once COVID calms down a little bit, how do I find a part-time gig that's flexible enough that I can make all of that work? Well, it's interesting. I mean, it, it- it, what you're talking about is sort of like phasing different parts in and out right. depending on yeah. what else is going on in your life. And that is, th- there's privilege in that, but it's also really mm-hmm. complicated. Well, and as a teacher, I love change. Like it, for me, there, I always regret it afterwards, but for me, it's like, oh, let's change to a different textbook or, or let's change up what I'm teaching completely just to keep things fresh. So for me, moving from, it was also fascinating to move from middle school to teaching where, where I could sort of count on most of the kids being in a similar place year to year, um, to teaching kids who are 12 to 18 or, you know, until they turned 18, realizing that due to the risk factors for substance abuse, these kids were all over the place. They could be 17 and reading at a fifth grade level. They could be, you know, most of them had some sort of undiagnosed learning issue. So um, I had to learn so much about engagement, about flexibility, about how just to get kids, you know, because as you can imagine, kids are not excited to A, be in rehab and B, to be told that they're going to have to go to school in rehab and be held accountable in school for learning while they're in rehab. Um, so there was a lot of resistance and a lot of distrust of adults. So that's a lot of hurdles to get over. And I, I live for that kind of stuff. I loved it. Yeah. Well, and it's so much of what you write about in terms of reaching kids and engaging them in ways that are sort of counterintuitive, at least counterintuitive to what our culture says we should be doing. And so I just want to sort of start start us off in this conversation by talking sure. a little bit about um, what you mean by failure and, and mm-hmm. what it is that we're kind of doing wrong. I mean, you write, and I'm going to quote from your book, that today's overprotective Failure avoidance parenting style has undermined the competence, independence, and academic potential of an entire generation. We've taught our kids to fear failure, and in doing so, we've blocked the surest and clearest path to their success. Yeah. (laughs) So I I think early on, you have to realize my perspective at the time when I wrote that was of, I was teaching in a middle school where most of the kids were fairly well off. And so, and a lot of them were like professors, kids, and the stakes were super high. Like, how is my kid going to achieve more than I achieved? And, you know, for the first time in, in a long time, in many generations, we can't expect our kids to do better than us economically. So there was a lot of that, you know, upper little middle class and, and, and definitely sort of a one percenter um, stress on the kids. But after number one, changing jobs, number two, going into the research, you know, you see this, not just this sort of outward facing, um, I have enough privilege and power to make demands on the school and the teacher and sort of get all of the obstacles out of the way for my kids, but also the sort of less power outside of the home, maybe in a family where the parent um, doesn't speak uh, English, uh, you know, and the parent does not feel like they have the privilege and power to do that. There's a lo- There seems to still be a lot of micromanaging of the kids in the home. So overparenting can look different 
based on a lot of different things. Um, but what I was seeing in my classroom over and over and over again was, you know, teachers wait for this really great learning moment to happen. You can't just teach a kid at any old time. You feel like it and and that learning will stick. A lot of teachers know that what you have to do is if you know a kid has an issue with, especially like executive function, organization, you know, they're just things aren't going well for them. You have to wait for the right learning moment. And what was happening over and over again was that right learning moment was presenting itself and then the parent would just sweep in and fix things and that learning moment's gone. And I don't know if I'm going to get that learning moment back. And uh, it's so it was really frustrating to me as a teacher to, I mean, there's the normal teacher stuff, like the parents bullying the teachers that happens. And that, you know, that was part of the gig too. But I'm talking about the moments where, you know, I had a kid once come back to my classroom. His parents showed up at school actually to berate him for, um, I had emailed the parent and let the parent know that, um, writing class, he wasn't progressing very well in writing because he becomes so overwhelmed and paralyzed when he gets negative feedback that he wasn't able to hear my feedback. And the purpose of my call was not to alert the parents to a disciplinary moment. It was to let the parent know that their kid is really struggling on an emotional level and how can I be of help? And instead, the parent showed up at the school and put the kid in the car um, during lunch to pull them out of lunch in front of all of his, his uh, friends and put him in the car and berated him. And the kid back came back after lunch period to my class, to my, my Latin class, and was just um, doing that sort of like, <laughs> you know, that like um, sh juddering, shuddering, I've been crying for 20 minutes thing. And that kid is in no place to be able to learn at that point. He's completely overwhelmed. His brain is shut down. And that was the sort of stuff where I realized, oh my gosh, I'm feeling protective of my students from their parents. And that's a really bad place to be in as a teacher because you know, homeschool relationships are essential to learning and having a good relationship with the parents, having a good relationship with the student is so important to how that kid learns. So that was a place of frustration for me. And I had a feeling that it wasn't just linked to the kid's anxiety. I had this feeling, and at that point it was just a hypothesis, that it was actually linked to their ability to learn. And so I sort of dove into the research of overparenting and um, autonomy, supportive parenting to look at how those things were connected. And um, that's really where gift of failure came to be. And um, I think, you know, the last thing I wanted to do was create a book, <clears throat> excuse me, that was shaming of parents and saying, oh, don't do this. You're so horrible. Don't do that. What I wanted to do was say, look, I've made all of these same mistakes. And what I care about is that kids learn. And what I care about is that kids become their most um, self-efficacious, which is not the way you're supposed to use that word. Um, they're most, you know, that they can self-advocate, that they have feel feelings of self-efficacy and agency. And that's what I want for kids. And so sorry if a little bit of this is going to be uncomfortable to you parents, but this is what I want for kids. Yeah. Well, so I just want to sort of pull out a couple of things because one is that when you talk about the gifts of failure, you're not just talking about academic failure, you're talking about failure on a number of different levels yeah. Help yeah. to support learning, which is like emotional health and autonomy and self-competence and agency. Well, and it's and not so an if, it's it's a when. Like it, there's this feeling that, oh, you know, we can't make mistakes, even in middle school, it's the stakes are so high, but they are going to happen. I mean, I'm a middle school teacher. I know what that looks like. Kids come in. My job is to be there while kids screw up all day long. And that's why being a middle school teacher is so much fun. And the reason they're going to screw up all day long is that we ask 
more of them than their frontal lobe can handle. It's not fully developed. And we're asking them to do all these things and juggle all these priorities. And so we set them up to make mistakes all the time. And so our, a great middle school teacher knows that our job is as much to teach kids as to guide them in coming up with strategies to be ready for high school and sort of those bigger, um, you know, the bigger uh, things they're going to have to deal with, more balls in the air they're going to have to deal with in college and beyond. So I don't want kids to fail, but what I do want is for them to have a proactive and a positive, adaptive response to failure when they do. So that's right, sort of right. where that like title that, came from. That failure is not sort of the end game. Failure is just a right, part, of exactly. the process, yeah. part of the learning process. Can I actually, I'm, I'm, I had this question. I'm just going to bring it up now sure, and then we'll go back to talking about why it's hard for parents to let go and sort of the, the pressures uh-huh. that parents feel, because I think that is an important topic. But before we do, I'm just kind of curious because that title, The Gift of Failure, is pretty mm-hmm. evocative. And I imagine that a lot of people have a strong reaction to it. And yeah. Interestingly, I was telling you that I'm working on a book on working parenthood mm-hmm. in the proposal stage, we titled it The Gift of Conflict and editors mm-hmm. hated it, right? They hated yeah. it. They said, we don't want us, we're not going to sell something that says conflict is a gift. Right. And I'm just sort of curious how- I think it's fantastic. It. No, <laughs> okay, here's some inside baseball on publishing. So my, I did not write, uh, I did not come up with that title. I, uh, we had lots of other titles, but what you want in a book is something that is makes it very, very clear what you're talking about. You don't want people to have to kind of guess. Um, uh, David Sedaris jokes that his titles are willfully obtuse and David Sedaris can get away with it, but you know, a nonfiction writer <laughs> cannot. My yeah. author, my, my agent came up with it and um, she told me that after another, after an editor, when she went out with the book, after an editor heard that title. She said, all I had to do was hear that title. And I knew that was going to be a six figure book. And since then, here's another sort of moment that was really interesting. There have been, there have been issues with the title. So my friend, Julie Lithcott Hames, she and I had our books come out at the same time. And her book is called How to Raise an Adult, which is much more positive, sort of, you know, proactive, positive sort of thing. And although I think there's some proactive stuff in mine, hers is less scary than mine. Hers is more, you know, enabling, ennobling, whatever. And so Julie and I joke that, you know, some people are scared of my title and, and mm-hmm. that's okay. That's, I think, for me, I kind of like the fact that it asks you, it's asking people to, um, to challenge themselves a little. And I have found that there are some people that are scared enough by the title that it's something that I dress pretty early in my speaking engagements. But I think your ti- I think that title's fantastic. I mean, that's just me, but I think it's really, really good. Yeah. Well, cause, and, and just sort of going back to what, I, and I love your title, but I do think you're asking people to embrace the idea that out of discomfort, there can be lots of wonderful things that grow. And that is, I mean, there's a ton of research supporting that idea. It's also a very mm-hmm. Buddhist idea. And so I think in some parts of our culture, it does get embraced, but in other parts, it does feel like, mm, I'm not going to go there. Like I'd rather yeah. just stick with what's comfortable and positive rather than, um, sort of open up to this idea that embracing something that feels really uncomfortable can be, can be, you know, can ultimately have good outcomes. I will say that the people that come to my speaking engagements often um, are people who already feel like something doesn't feel right. That something about what I'm doing, either because of the amount of conflict that's happening with their kid or because of the number of times they're checking on the school portal, on the computer, you know, something is feeling a little bit off. I do get, you know, some parents who, 
either come because they've heard of me or come because they're like, we do try to stress the fact that what I'm talking about here is the fact that this is really good for learning. And so let me talk to you about how to help your kid learn and to be motivated to do things for the sake of the learning itself and not just because you're dangling extrinsic motivators in front of them. But, you know, I, I, I kind of live in that place where I poke a little bit and then try to be as positive as possible about it and be very charming so that you're not mad at me. But I do, I, I do live in that place of poke, retreat, poke, retreat. So Gift of Failure, I think, is an appropriate title for my own book. Yeah, no, it's perfect. <laughs> Um, well, that's actually a good segue into talking a little bit about why it is so hard for parents to let go. So, you know, some people are sort of on the cusp of doing this. And I think understanding what it is that feels so terribly uncomfortable can actually help us to be more willing to embrace it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you talk about reasons direct, sort of founded in biology, our culture, our expectations, mm-hmm. our kids' individual mm-hmm. needs. And so, you know, for you, what comes to the top when you think about why it's so hard for parents to let go and let their kids, you know, fall on their face sometimes? Yeah, I think for me, there's a whole chapter about it in the book, but really for me, it comes down to we're having fewer kids later in life after more time in the workplace or in education. I mean, coming from someone who's grossly overeducated, you know, I have an entire degree I don't use, but it was a great learning experience for me. I was, I went to law school and never practiced as a lawyer, but that was the plan. Originally, I was going to go work in juvenile court. So, um, you know, I think that's, and, and the fact that, you know, we can't count on our kids doing better than us economically and, uh, global pressure and the media. Oh my gosh, the media, the media would have us believe that it's impossible to get into college, that our kids are doomed, that, um, that there, you know, there's so many things that are coming at us all the time. And, you know, the way we filter, we tend to pay attention to the things that are most emotional for us. So, for example, if we suddenly hear that there's, you know, a challenge going around the internet where kids, um, you know, are challenged to, I don't know, cut themselves and it's sweeping the nation and, you know, four kids have ended up at ERs, you know, we're more likely to pay attention to that threat than to the fact that our kids aren't wearing seatbelts in the car. So, you know, we tend to weight these um, emotionally evocative things more highly when we consider risk. So I think we have these weird ways of calculating risk. We, you know, we're really worried, we, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then we bring like the tools of our education and of our work to our parenting. So suddenly we're using spreadsheets for our kids to monitor, uh, I don't know, all kinds of stuff, the ins and outs of what goes in and out of their mouth and into their diaper. Um, So I think that's part of it. And the other problem, and this comes from research um, by Wendy Grolnick and is, and she has a couple of great, um, if you go, by the way, if you go to jessicalehy.com under speaking, there's a button that you can press that says download speaking bibliography. And that bibliography has sort of all the books I tend to talk about the most and videos and studies and stuff like that. But Wendy Grolnick's work talks about um, autonomy, supportive parenting, but it also talks about this thing called pressured parents phenomenon where, we just whip each other up into a frenzy and it's highly contagious. And I wrote about it in this piece called for the Atlantic called why back to school night made me feel like a bad parent where, you know, I left my kids at home to go to back to school night. I loved their elementary school. They're great people left my kids at home, you know, like playing guitar and playing Minecraft. And I'm feeling really good about my parenting. And I go there 
And I'm meeting, I'm seeing parents who haven't been home yet because they've been doing the cello and the private tutoring and the traveling soccer league and the math, you know, after school activities. And I start to hyperventilate. And that's me, a person who has written a book about not doing that. So if I'm starting to hyperventilate and I have to take my own advice, which is to step back from that and just sort of just take a few breaths and realize, no, no, no. I'm doing okay. My kids are okay. That's, I don't need to buy into that, that crazy over there. That's not about me. That's about them. And, you know, it's just a really highly contagious sort of sense of, you know, the adrenaline and the cortisol and all that stuff starts to go. And we're suddenly like, oh my God, my kid's being left behind. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think the pressure is intense. And then you also feel like people are, people are judging you and sometimes they, they legitimately are. You have to sort of walk away from that. But there yeah. is this sense that people are not only judging your parenting, but also judging your children as a yes. sign of your parenting. And so yeah. I think that there can be a projection of what Absolutely. we want our kids to do that is related to like our own self-esteem that is really unfair to kids, but it's hard so to unfair. Well, and part of that, us going to school longer and being in the workforce longer is we're just, we're really attached to short-term sort of evaluations of our progress in our job or whatever. You know, for me now, it's, oh my gosh, how many times has this article been shared? Did I reach a big audience? You know, that's sort of my report card on how well I did on a piece or did so-and-so tell me he thought it was a good piece, that kind of thing. But we don't get that for our kids. So we have to, and what parents tend to do is look to our kids' accomplishments and co-opt those as some sort of feedback on our parenting, which is bullshit, sorry, which is crap because, um, which is not fair to the kids. So the one thing that I sort of took away from this, which, you know, are these small symbolic acts that allow my kids to really know that I mean it when I say that their accomplishments, I'm not like so invested in their accomplishments that I'm taking that as some sort of, you know, um, for example, when my son, my older son started applying to colleges, the one thing I knew I would not do, and I told him we would not do, is put a sticker on the back of our car proclaiming as some sort of like, yay me, my kid goes to X college. Like, so that when I drive into the school parking lot, I get to be like, look at my sticker on the back of my car. The one thing I wouldn't do that because the, is, is that because the choice of where he goes to school is so much more important than my ability to boast about where he goes to school. Mm-hmm. It is an incredibly important decision to him, not in terms of just the job stuff, but where he's going to feel comfortable learning. Um, so we have never put a sticker on the back of our car. And, um, you know, I hope that that's just some sort of very small way of saying, we don't get to co-opt your, um, your successes, your learning, all of that stuff. Yeah. Another part of the, this chapter that really resonated with me um, was your discussion of like the rise of the parenting expert. And mm-hmm. I mean, it may be ironic because I, I, I to be talking about that too. Because, <laughs> you know, technically, I mean, that's what I get labeled as and, and that's not what I would like to be labeled as, but whatever it's, and then I'm, yeah, I just feel like a hypocrite in that one, but yes, let's go there. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I also, need to make reference to the fact that you discussed Laura Ingalls Wilder because she was a huge favorite of mine too. But you sort of juxtapose modern parenting with parenting on the prairie <laughs> where there's like no social media and, you know, Ma Ingalls just kind of knows what to do. And they're really about discipline and, and there isn't a whole lot of showmanship and there isn't any experts to tell them what's right or wrong. They sort of develop this internal compass. 
And we've sort of lost sight of, I think we've lost sight of our internal compass because we have this overemphasis on experts telling us, feeding us, like what's right for our kids. Well, you know, I mean, there are some flaws in my logic I completely get because a lot of that sort of discipline was often about like, just, um, you know, just do what I say because I'm the head of the household and you should do that. Or because God said that because, you know, religion was a big, but for me, what it was, was that, um, that understanding that to put some faith in the fact that the parent had some level of experience that might be useful. And so in the way that sort of translated to me is a lot of explaining the whys um, to my kids. Like I don't, I can't think of a time my, my college age kid is in the kitchen and I can, he probably is dying to say something, but I can't think of a time when I've just said just do it this way and don't ask any questions. Like that's not where learning happens. The whole point of talking about, you know, we have a lot of conversations about the why of, you know, why you hang out with this particular kid or whether, you know, why um, getting in the car with that kid at two o'clock in the morning, you know, is might not be the best idea, that kind of thing. Um, and so my hope was, in, you know, I originally looked to Ma Ingalls because it was just sort of a no one seemed to talk back to her or pa, but also, you know, I looked to, when I was little, I looked to like what, what, what kind of person Laura was. And I wanted to be the kind of person Laura was. And then when I became a parent, I sort of, you know, she seemed to have faith in the fact that her kids would be okay and that they would make good decisions. And that's always been really important to me because that's how I was raised. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to segue into talking a little bit about internal versus external motivation. Mm-hmm. Because, and, and I think that this, what, what you just said really fits into that because what Ma Ingalls and Pa Ingalls wanted was for <laughs> their kids to be independent and self-sufficient right. and to like figure yeah. out their way in the world. And I think we get so hooked on the short-term outcomes of, um, is my child going to make right. it into you know, the honors role? Are they going to make it into a good college? Are they going to get a well-paying job? And we sort of forget about self-sufficiency and Mm -hmm. what underlies it all, which is internal motivation to learn, to take care of ourselves, to figure out how to move on when, when life gets a little bit tough, Mm -hmm. you know, on our own without parental support, which doesn't mean we can't support, but ultimately we want our kids to be more autonomous. Right. Um, And so you talk a lot about self-determination theory, which I want to go into, Mm -hmm. but before we do, I wonder if you can sort of walk us through what happens when we do external motivators, what happens to the internal motivation? Because this is such an important point. Well, you know, and for me, none of this is me. This was originally Dan Pink. I think that was the first time I started hearing about this stuff, which is where most, a lot of people, either through his TED Talk or through Drive. But then when you look at, um, at, uh, when you look at Dan Pink's work, which is great. Um, the roots of Dan Pink's work really go back to Edward DC um, and the book, Why We Do What We Do, The Science of Self-Motivation. Um, so the, we have like this 40 years of really clear, now 50 years of really clear research that shows that when you put, when you try to motivate kids, when you try to motivate humans with extrinsic motivators, external motivation, carrot and stick. And what a lot of parents don't see, what seems to be a surprise for a lot of parents is that say, they seem to understand that as, you know, like money for grades, um, you know, you can have a new iPhone if you behave, you know, that kind of stuff, those positive sort of things. And grades are part of that too. I mean, grades are the ultimate extrinsic motivator, but there's also the negative ones too, like, you know, um, if you don't do X, you're going to be grounded or surveillance is an extrinsic motivator. So when we're watching kids on their phones, that's an extrinsic motivator. 
if we are um, going on the portal at school and, and, you know, watching what they're happening, what's happening with their grades, that's also surveillance. And that's an extrinsic motivator. And, and I don't ever say like, we can't ever use extrinsic motivators. That's silly. Um, What I do say is that if we could, that all of these things are extrinsic motivators, and let's talk about them for what they are, and understand that 50 years of research shows that extrinsic motivators actually undermine over the long term, not necessarily in the short term, and we can talk about that, but over the long term actually undermine motivation. So if you want your kid to learn something over the long term that requires long-term focus and prioritizing goals and that kind of stuff, then extrinsic motivators will actually undermine that. Um, It works great to boost motivation as a one-off. It works great the first time, maybe the second, third. And that's where they get tricky because it looks like it works so great. Sticker charts look like they work so great, but what they do is create a reliance on that extrinsic motivator. Um, And the other problem with extrinsic motivators is that they also undermine um, creativity. So poor art and music teachers who have to use grades to, I mean, it's a nightmare. So if you want your kids to do stuff over the long term that requires creativity and planning and blah, blah, long term focus, then extrinsic motivators are a nightmare. So what we want are the intrinsic motivators and those intrinsic motivators and at its highest level, that Mihai Csikszentmihalyi feeling of flow. That's where the deepest learning happens. So as a teacher, that's my holy grail, right? If I can get kids intrinsically motivated to learn and get them to that flow state, which will not happen if I'm saying, do this, do this, do this, that's just flow is not going to happen. It's sort of, I make the analogy, would you rather read a book you picked yourself or one that was assigned to you? Even if it was a book you picked yourself and then someone assigns it to you, you're like, oh, I don't want to read this book anymore. Um, And that intrinsic motivation happens through autonomy, competence, and connection. And how those are interpreted, Edward D.C. has his interpretation of them and mine are similar, but that connection piece when it comes to education has to be blown up a little bit and and expanded to include things like not just interpersonal relationships, but relevance and um, connection to the connecting the material to the world out there and that sort of stuff. So autonomy, competence, and connection um, in order to get intrinsic motivation. So you started in talking about connection and mm-hmm. I love that you made the point that it's not just about like interpersonal connection. It's actually a connection to the idea, like making the ideas come to life for, mm-hmm. for your child. Yeah. And um, in one of your talks, you talked about uh, bringing Latin to life for middle schoolers. I mean, so <laughs> there are ways to make material yeah. come to life yep. for most kids. And it doesn't have to be that they're, you know, then into Latin and they're going to, you know, become doctors because that's where Latin is most useful, but you can find ways to make, to help, to support kids in getting enthusiastic about the learning process in almost any well, content area. And that comes down do to that? relevance. Well, that comes down to relevance and that comes down to emotional connection. So if you look at the research of Mary Helen Imordino Yang at USC, Emotions and Learning, um, she talks a lot about what happens when you put people in fMRI tubes when they care about what they're learning and when they don't care about what they're learning. And there's just no learning happening when they don't care about what they're learning. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of us have experienced this. Um, and it's not just about our own personal connection to the learning, but it, you know, when, when you first start learning history and you've got no place to hang other dates and you're sort of, it's like this big morass of stuff that happened. And it isn't until history starts to have enough landmarks for you and you can connect things to each other that history starts to make sense to you. So it's a connection 
between you and the material, between the material and the outside world, and the material to other ideas that make that material come alive. So there's so, so that's why this is one of my favorite things to do is talk about this stuff with teachers as professional development, because we can spend two hours, <clears throat> excuse me, just on connection, because we do have to talk about interpersonal connection. We do have to talk about engagement, but there's a, a whole bunch of other stuff we have to talk about as well. Yeah. And I was also going to just add that I think it goes in both directions. Like my oldest son is really into chess, which I find incredibly boring, mm-hmm. but I asked him, why is it so interesting to you? Like, what what is it about it that keeps you so engaged for so many mm-hmm. hours at a time? And he was able to sort of explain to me that there's this toggling back and forth between seeing the specific moves and the larger picture and seeing sort of behind what's actually on the board. Right. And that was really interesting, interesting yeah. to me as a psychologist. Like, he's sort of looking at various layers of strategy and that there's mm-hmm. really something very um, creative about that and insightful about that. And in this conversation, I, it was like the most connected conversation we've ever had about chess because I think my yeah. brain really shuts off. So yeah. I think that there's something really powerful about that connection happening in both directions for parents that sometimes we really want them to do what we think is important. Right. And sometimes it's really valuable. And, and I say this, you know, as with some hypocrisy, but it's, it can be really <laughs> to to really allow them to teach us what's important to them and to be excited about that and to support them in that. Well, and they know when we don't care. Like one of the things, one of the jokes I made, my, this is uh, when gift to failure, when I wrote gift to failure, my youngest was about nine. And right after I wrote gift to failure, um, my husband and I are both academics. My older son is very quickly becoming an academic and my younger son at the time, um, developed a really intense interest in crystals. And so I make the joke that a lot of um, a lot of parents in the audience would be like, ooh, he's going to be a geologist. Isn't that exciting for you? And I'm like, no, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. Like he was into the crystal healing vibrations. And so my first instinct as someone who um, has very much been trained in like the science of things is like, oh, sweetie, <laughs> there's no evidence for that. But instead, what we did, like I could tell you could just see it in his eyes how much it's meant to him. So I have a choice to make at that point, which is to say, you know, that's kind of stupid, which by the way, he would hear the words, I am stupid, or what you think about me is that I am stupid or irrelevant. And instead, what I asked him was exactly what you asked your son, which is what te- I don't know anything about crystals, teach me about that. And so for a about two years, this was his obsession. And you ask it, just asking your kid not only shows, gives them this incredible opportunity to, to teach you, which is fantastic for them. That helps them learn also. But what you're saying to them is, I care about what you and what you care about. So in asking your kid to explain to you what they find so beautiful, that is showing an investment in our love and that we're going to care about them. And no, even if it's something that we don't, that we may be dismissive of. I mean, my son, my older son now is studying really higher level math stuff. I do not understand, but I love when he explains it to me because he, I get to see in his face just how excited it makes him. It's just a, it's a, when you talk about that connection, I mean, that, that's the ultimate right there where you can say like, that's cool, sweetie. Why don't you tell me about that? And it just really shows them that you care about what they think is important, men not necessarily. Even if it's just, you know, why do you like 
I don't know, I'm going to date myself here, but what do you like about Justin Bieber's music? What is it that you find so entrancing? And that's an opportunity to get some insight into your kid. Yeah. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So this is um, a little bit related, but there's this really cool study that you describe in your book by Wendy Grolnick, where she looks at autonomy supportive mm-hmm. parent-child dyads versus mm-hmm. um, more controlling parents. And I wonder if you could just describe, because I, I think it's an interesting, when you talk about connection and autonomy support, it's interesting to think like, what does that look like on the ground? Right. Because it yeah. can help guide our own parenting choices and behaviors. There were two Two studies, two things, two ideas that really pulled Gift of Failure together for me. It was the research of Wendy Grolnick around autonomy, supportive parenting. And later on when I read, um, thank goodness it came out when it did, the book Make It Stick that has three authors. It comes out, it came out from Harvard University Press about desirable difficulties. So Autonomy, she did this really cool study where she brought in um, mother-infant pairs. It just, they, it happened to fall out as mother-infant pairs. And they had created a, um, a task that was challenging for the infant um, and something that, because they wanted to, they wanted the task to be on purpose. It was a little frustrating for the kids. And they gave really general directions to the parents, which were um, be there while your child completed this task. And then they watched and coded the behavior of the mother and the infant. And some of the parents, you know, supported their kid and letting that they let their kid do it the way they wanted to do it in the order they wanted to do it, how and where and in what order, all that sort of stuff. And but were there when the kid got stuck, like sort of did what good teachers do, which is not to give them the answer, but to uh, help prompt them toward finding that next answer themselves. That was termed sort of autonomy supportive. And then there were the parents, you know, that were really sort of all over the kids and told them exactly how to do it or in what order and gave them directions for each step. And that was called directive or controlling parents. And just as a side note, I don't tend to use the word controlling because that upsets parents, like using that word freaks them out. So I use the word directive. So then she had the parents and the children come back to her lab, but this time she separated the kids from the infants. So the kids were doing this task by themselves without a parent present. And the kids who had the autonomy supportive parents were re- were likely to finish the task, even though it was frustrating for them. They were able to sort of be comfortable enough with their frustration to give it another shot. Whereas the kids who had the directive or controlling parents uh, would get frustrated and give up. Almost all of the kids with the directive parents gave up and almost all of the kids uh, with the autonomy supportive parents were able to complete the task. And there was a gradation, obviously, there's a spectrum. Uh, but that was really 
stunning to me, especially when you take into account that one of the most powerful to- teaching tools I have is this thing called desirable difficulties, which is a really cool concept, which is when you give kids tasks that are a little more difficult to parse, when you give them tasks that are just a little difficult to get into their heads, um, it helps them encode the information more quickly and more efficiently into their long-term memory, bypasses short-term memory, and they have deeper learning from that experience. But if you think about who can benefit from desirable difficulties, it's not the kids who give up in the face of a little bit of frustration. It's the kids who had the autonomy supportive parents who were a little bit better at dealing with their frustration and seeing the task through to the end. So those two pieces sort of went boom and sort of exploded in my head. And I'm like, oh, that's how the overparenting can affect kids' ability to learn in the long term. And yes, there's more to it and there's stuff with the extrinsic motivators and all that stuff. But if the most powerful teaching tool I have is suddenly unavailable to some of my students, then that directly impacts the learning of some of the kids in my class. And that's where I get all heated. Yeah. So that, so as a parent, what you want to do is that is, is sort of figure out like developmentally, like where is your right. kid and where would push them just out of their comfort zone where they right. could sort of be challenged and be uncomfortable and get frustrated. And in that space, it's, I think Vygotsky calls it the zone of proximal development. So right. Just right. That's not exactly. And that is where you don't want to rescue them. You don't want to swoop in but you can sort of provide some guidance, like, hmm. Right. You know, scaffolding. You we call it scaffolding in education. Right. right. Exactly. And I just um, was talking with a friend of mine recently who is saying that her son plays basketball. And it's really mm-hmm. hard for the parents not to kind of step in and say, no, 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 do, do, do the layup. <laughs> yeah. You've got to start with this yeah. book. Because it's so yeah. easy to sort of step in. And we were talking about like what, what they can do instead. So I wonder like, what do you recommend to parents who say, but you know, they're doing it wrong right in front of me. Right. Right. And let's, let's sort of take it out of that classroom and more into like athletics. Right. But what, what should a parent do? And because it's easy to say what they shouldn't do, but what should they do instead, I think is, is a useful question to ask. Yeah. Parents that are feeling a little Let's take your example because I think that's a really good one because actually telling them that they're leading with the wrong foot can be really a help. If that's the one piece of information you're giving back to them, then that's great. If it's, you know, the problem is, is when it's like every single play, there's like 10 pieces of information and blah, blah, blah. That's not going to work. But what's really helpful about that is uh, about the piece of information about the leading with the, the other foot is there is the opportunity to watch their idols play and say, oh, look what foot he leads with, or he's left-handed. Look, which, tell me, let's look at these two players. One's left-handed and one's right-handed. Are they leading? I'm just curious. I don't know the answer to this question. Maybe people can be ambidextrous. I don't know, but let's figure it out. Um, if Is that layup feeling uncomfortable to you? What do you think might make that layup feel more comfortable to you with your body? What? Let's try it a couple different ways and see what works. So there's that engaging the kid. And so, for example, um, a, a preschool, uh, parent of a preschool kid, uh, I was speaking in a preschool and she's like, look, my kid will not get dressed and out of the door in the morning. And it's frustrating for all of us. It's upsetting. It's causing a lot of tension. And, um, and I just don't know what to do. And so I said, well, have you ever asked your kid how, what, what they can do? Cause I'm guarantee you, if you feel uncomfortable and upset in the morning, they feel uncomfortable and upset in the morning. So why not come to them and say, 
Sweetie, you know, mornings around here really are upsetting and I get stressed out and I can tell you get stressed out. So I've been thinking a lot about what can make mornings easier. What do you, what do you think would make mornings easier? Or, you know, when I'm trying to get out of the door in the morning, I am always forgetting my ex. So I came up with this strategy for always remembering to get X. So what are some strategies you seem to not remember your backpack? So what do you think you could do to come up with some strategies as opposed to saying, I'm going to make you a checklist and you are going to check that checklist every day before you go out the door. See what your kid comes up with. And I guarantee you, it's not always going to be that first thing that's going to work. But a lot of kids can come up with strategies on their own, which is, by the way, what they're supposed to do. The strategy that will end up working for your kid in the end is almost always going to be the one that they came up with on their own. Um, for my kid, it was it did happen to be a checklist, something I had been advocating for for years that suddenly when he came up with it, he was like, I came up with the coolest idea. I could do a checklist. And it was like, I had never said this word before. It's like, suddenly I'm not, I am the biggest checklist user on the planet. Um, but suddenly that became his thing that he came up with, or at least he believes he came up with, and that's cool with me. So for the next five years, a checklist was the way he remembered to take all of his stuff. And I want to also mention that that moment where he came up with the checklist came out of a really pivotal moment that's in the book. Um, he had been forgetting his math homework uh, or his homework in general every day. And there was this day where he had been working so hard on the homework and um, he had been giving it his all and he left it at home and it was on his coffee table. And we're to the point now where the teacher is ready to really just lower the boom. It's going to be bad and it's going to be upsetting for my kid. He's embarrassed. He's frustrated. So I can get around all of that by taking that homework to school for him. It's like, it would be so easy. The school's a mile and a half from my house, but that I didn't. And that day, the teacher kept him in from recess, which I do not advocate for. Please, teachers, do not keep the kids in for recess for disciplinary reasons. It's such a nightmare. Don't do it. But he did. And he also said, you can't go out to recess until you come up with a strategy that will allow you to do better next time. And God bless that man. He was, I love his teacher. His name was Mr. Dano. And that moment was the moment my kid realized that a checklist might be something that would work for him. And if I had taken that homework that day, that learning opportunity engineered by Mr. Dano would never have happened. And it was a huge breakthrough for my kid. And it was because someone turned to him and said, what do you think? What would work for you? How can you engineer, engineer something, excuse me, that'll work for you? Um, rather than the person saying, here's the strategy I have invented for you and use it. Right. I, that's such a terrific example of where our temptation to kind of swoop in and save our kid from discomfort really does them a disservice because you miss that teaching opportunity. And I was, speaking, but it makes us feel so good. It, it makes, makes us feel so good. So good. And good. it makes us, oh, it makes me feel so warm and parenting inside. Oh, it's amazing. And it feels so tremendously uncomfortable in contrast to not, yeah. it's like knowing your kid is hungry because they forgot their lunch or that they're right. cold. Let me tell you, as a teacher, here's what's happening. We're helping your kid figure out the lunch thing, or they're too embarrassed, and so they share with their friends. Number two, and yes, I know with food allergies, that's an issue, and they're not supposed to share, but whatever, off topic right now. Number two, with the jacket, they will go to the teacher will take them to the lost and found, and they will wear a jacket that they hate, which will 
help hammer home the point that if they don't want to wear the jacket they hate, they should probably remember their own jacket. So all of the things that can happen when you don't step in will reinforce the learning that is so important for them to have in order to do better next time. Do you want to feel good about your parenting or your efforts or your love for your kid in this moment? Or do you want to have a kid who can do better for themselves? And by the way, once my younger kid figured out that whole checklist thing, there were moments in the morning when I'd come downstairs and I'd see him standing in front of the refrigerator, which is where the checklist was, doing the last thing on his checklist, which was brush teeth, and see him remember all his stuff and know he was so proud of himself because another day had come and gone and he had not forgotten his homework. So after that checklist thing happened, I can count on one hand the number of times that kid forgot his homework. And that's where the real feeling of competence comes from. So I can feel good about myself in that moment, or I can feel good about myself six months later where and really see where my kid is feeling good about himself too. So just putting it off a little bit can sometimes get the real rewards. Yeah. Yeah. Let's pause ourselves a little bit more. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to pull out of what you just said is that school systems do want to support. And yes. this teacher friend of mine that I was speaking with said that they her school had a policy of if a kid forgot a homework, that the parent was not allowed, that like they would be obstructed from delivering it. And I, yeah. I think that that can be helpful if the school is supporting you and yeah. maybe something to discuss mm-hmm. with the teachers or the administrators. But you know, we as parents also just need to pause ourselves and recognize the opportunities that get missed if we save our kids. And you have this great line that I love, which is all the love, none of the rescuing. Yeah. And actually that, that strategy you're talking about, um, when superintendents ask me, and it's often superintendents because they have this power to sort of enact larger structures because one teacher, it's really hard for one teacher to change the school climate a little easier for a head of school or principal or a superintendent. Um, when they say, okay, look, this gift of failure stuff is great. We really want to support parents. What is, what can we do? What, like, let's start today. What can we do to help support parents in this? And there are a couple things they can do, but one of them is, Look, send out an email and a a message to your entire school community saying, look, we have this author here. She was talking about the importance of um, supporting kids while they make mistakes and helping learn, helping them get strategies to do better next time. So to that end, we are having a new district policy that there will be no more dropping stuff off after first bell. Um, believe me, I go to schools and there are like two tables right inside the front door and they're loaded with stuff. And the school, um, the administrative assistant at the school hates it. The schools hate it. So, but the nice thing about that is if you say, look, our strategy is not like to screw your kids over by having, letting them, you know, not have their soccer cleats. It's we will support them when that happens. And P.S., if and also it's from an equity standpoint, let's think about who can bring stuff back to school after first bell. It's not parents using public transportation. It's not parents who are doing shift work. It's yeah. parents who have the freedom and the uh, flexibility to run home and get something and bring it to the kid. So if you really care about your whole community and you really care about the growth um, and long-term growth of your whole entire community, then making that rule will make your school populate. It will make everything more equitable and it will be a show of what we really care about is the long-term um, social, emotional, and, you know, executive function, uh, you know, learning of our, of our students and not just in the moment, that one quiz score or that one soccer game. Yeah. 
Well, and so that kind of brings me to my next question, which is, you know, that's well and good when our kids are in school. school. And yeah. this was definitely something that I struggled with in the spring. I have three kids, ages three, seven, and 10 now. Right. Um, right. And, you know, when they were not doing, you know, I'm pretty comfortable with letting the teacher sort of, you know, step in, in a lot of different situations, but there Mm -hmm. was no teacher to step in. The teacher barely knew what was happening because there was just a real lack of communication. All the learning was asynchronous. Um, My kids don't love Zoom, which I totally get. Who does? (laughs) Um, it's um, not the same as a one-to-one. It's not the same as a relationship. And research, we there has been some research since it's come out talking about the fact that we're looking for certain social cues that we can't see. And it's exhaust. if it's exhausting for us, imagine what it's like for kids. Imagine what it's like for kids who don't have a great grasp of social, social cues. It's a nightmare for them. Yeah. It really is yeah. difficult. Right. Sorry, and I totally interrupted. <laughs> no, I, I think that that's a hugely important point, which is which is, and, and it really impinges on the connection, right? The interpersonal connection right. of the kid to this, to the teacher, right. also the kid to the peer group, which, you know, has an important impact on motivation. Right. And so what are your recommendations in terms of letting our kids, like letting go a little bit, but in this strange situation that we're in, where most of our kids are, are yeah. hopefully going to be more connected in the fall than they were in the spring, but, but maybe not. Yeah. So <laughs> There's, I am an eternal optimist. I kind of can't help it. And I guess it's good for the job because education is such a mess that I ha- kind of have to be to survive writing about it. But I actually see a lot of opportunities in this moment. Um, I cannot recommend enough a book by Bill Sticksrud and, um, and we Ned Johnson called, Oh, the self-driven child. The self-driven yeah, so child. We'll link to it with Dr. Yeah, Sticksrud. It's awesome. It's, Oh, I love the book. I love that book. And I also have another book behind me um, that I'll talk about in a second. But so there's a lot of great stuff in that book. I highly recommend that book. Um, but one of the things that has been really a side effect of being in our each other's faces so much is that we're seeing a lot of things that we weren't seeing before. We're seeing opportunities. Um, we're seeing opportunities to understand what real what the levers are for our kids what our kids really care about and what our kids really care about are the ways we get in there to help motivate them to do the stuff they don't want to care about so um without getting too deep into the extrinsic motivators like you know you can play xbox if you do this kind of thing um which is an extrinsic motivator you know, there are ways for us to talk about the parts of the learning that are relevant to them and the parts that aren't. And understand that even as a teacher, lots of teachers are talking about the fact that, yes, we're missing a lot of academic material. And yes, that is disproportionately affecting um, kids uh, who are poor and kids of color and kids, you know, not never mind the fact that they're getting sick more, too. Um we need to view this year as a year of learning academically, but also as a huge year for social emotional learning, helping our kids cope emotionally with some of the stuff that's going on. And so when your kid is having a really hard time with Zoom, 
rather than just sit them there and force them to look at the screen, having these conversations about what's difficult for them and what's not. Um, for some kids, it's the video cameras. For some kids, it's um, having the microphone on all the time or having the camera on all the time and feeling like they're being watched all the time. Those, again, back to the surveillance extrinsic motivator thing. So there are tricks that we can talk to the teacher about, like, look, I know your requirement is for now that the camera has to be on at all times because you want to see that the kid is paying attention. But just because the kids are focused on you does not mean the kid is paying attention. That's not engagement. So can we try for like a week having the video camera off or, you know, which is going to be challenging for the teachers because then that's, you know, a disproportionate blah, blah, blah. It's difficult. It's hard for everyone. But having an idea of why, talking to the kid about why it's difficult to them for them, letting them know that we understand that this stuff is difficult for all of us, um, making some deals about, you know, not every single assignment is of utmost importance right now. My husband talks a lot about, you know, when he was in medical school, there were certain, he couldn't do it all. And so one of the classes that he had a sense he wasn't going to need as much because he wasn't going to go into this particular field, probably, um, he was going to sort of put that down there on the, on the, uh, ladder of things, you know, his what am I trying to say? His, his uh, ranking of what's important to him. And so we're going to have to rank things right now and pick our battles um, in order to maintain our connection with our kids and in order for our kids to maintain a connection with their teacher. So I would prioritize the relationship with the teacher and the relationship with you over infighting um, over the Zoom or the homework. And then let the teacher know that you're having trouble with engagement with your kid. Um, and then maybe the teacher could have a little one-on-one -on -one with the kid and talk to the kid and get to know the kid because this year connection is going to be a big hurdle for many, many kids because we don't, mm -hmm. last year we had the opportunity to at least get to know our students before things went crazy and we could maintain that connection through Zoom, but we're not, ha a lot of kids, unless the school district is doing something called looping, which is super smart, that, you know, the teacher they had last year will be the teacher they have again this year just to maintain that connection. That's really helpful. Um, it also works in juvenile court, by the way, judicial looping is a thing so that the kids are seeing the same judge over and over again. Um, that can, yeah, it's really smart. Um, but having those moments to talk to the teacher and say, look, here's what's working and here's what's not. Is there any chance that you could have a conversation with my kid separately from the rest of the class, which is, you know, and also understanding that the teachers often have their own kids and they're trying to balance all the stuff too. So there's no easy answer right now. Everything stinks. Nothing is going to be optimal. Um, keep in mind, have some patience with the teachers as well, because um, online learning, by the way, virtual learning is a skill that people go to school for or take classes in. It is not something that you can just take what you do at school and translate to in front of a Zoom camera. Um, it's not the same thing, especially for teachers who are doing like project based learning and stuff like that. It's just really hard to do. I I do want to take the opportunity really quickly while we're talking about self-driven child to talk about a book that is like should be essential reading. And for kids the age you're talking about, this is so important. Um, there's a book called How to Be a Person by Catherine Newman. Oh, you have so her on podcast. She's so awesome. She's yeah. amazing. So this is essentially, Catherine said what she wanted was like one of those DK books for doing stuff around the house and like addressing a letter and you know, unloading the dishwasher, addressing a letter, talking to a grown up, introducing right, yourself like to a grown up. <laughs> right, exactly. So, this book is like everything from how to write a thank you note, load the dishwasher, get out a stain, tie a necktie, manage your money, calculate the tip with pictures. It's really intended for, 
I mean, I think little, little kids could look at the pictures with you and you could work out the pictures and work out the text with them. But it's really meant for younger kids to sort of look at this and do it themselves, how to wrap a present. And it's got like all of the drawings for how you do it. And this can be a really great way to sort of get the kids on the path of being self-driven and self-directed. And just keeping in mind also for younger kids that, you know, back to the brain, front frontal lobes not developed yet. That's where all the organization and the transitions and the paying attention to things and all that stuff, self-regulation, that's where that happens. And the younger the kid, the less that frontal lobe is developed. And so have some flexibility with your kid. And the more you're yelling at them or sniping at them for not doing exactly what they need to moment to moment, the less likely they're going to be doing it for the sake of the thing itself. So give them some space. Yeah. Well, and I love that perspective shift of saying that, you know, it is likely that academic learning isn't going to happen in the same way or as much as it right. has in past years that are more normal, but that there can be other kinds of learning. And if we yes. can sort of shift our focus from academic learning to like creative and development of motivation and right. making decisions about what's important and what's not for them. That, that how about we shift? How appreciate. How about we shift our focus to the importance of developing empathy in kids? Um, so mm-hmm. Michelle, Michelle Borba's book on selfie is incredibly important. And one of the things you could do is if your kid is sensitive about talking about why they hate being on Zoom, maybe if there's another kid in their class who also hates being on Zoom, you could say, why do you think Michelle gets so upset about having to be on the camera? Why do you think Michelle turns her camera off during class? What do you think she's feeling? What do you think is going on? I mean, we can't talk to her right now, but that's all about perspective taking and empathy, which is one of the most important things that kids need to be developing during this this period. And one of the things that's harder for them to develop when they're not face-to-face. And by the way, one of the most important skills when you talk to kindergarten teachers about um, the most important skills they develop in places like in in kindergarten, um, that social-emotional stuff and developing empathy and the ability to perspective take is so important. So if if math is not happening in that moment, maybe we focus a little more on the empathy and perspective taking. So those are all important skills. Let's not get so focused on the fact that four times four is what they're supposed to be doing right now, but they're melting down, let's figure out why they're melting down and we'll get to four times four later. Yeah. So I'm curious, and this is a question from my our co-host, Jill Stoddard. How, mm-hmm. If we're shifting perspective away from academic learning, just because that, that's kind of what makes sense right now, I mean, what do you recommend in terms of parents supporting reluctant learners in this next phase of exclusive or partial home learning? Engagement, 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 relevance, relevance, relevance. So, <clears throat> I mean, I think you're going to have this incredible opportunity to see what your kids hate and what your kids like. And one of the things I talk about in Gift to Failure a lot is the one of the really helpful things we did for a while in our house, and occasionally we still do it, is talking about our goals. I mean, I do it myself. I set long-term goals for a season. And um, one of those goals often has to be something that is out of my comfort zone, something that's a little scary for me. And we were doing that for a while as a family. It's gotten harder as the kids get older because they roll their eyes more. But having an idea of what your kid really cares about And not what you hope your kid really cares about, but what your kid really cares about, whether that's healing crystals or, you know, making new friends or whatever that thing is, you get that sort of view into what your kid really cares about. And then when you know that, you can then tailor learning 
to resemble that. And I've talked about this in a bunch of my speaking engagements that are online. Um, I had an experience with a parent whose kid was totally not interested in school at all, not doing any of the work. And it was because she saw school as irrelevant because she wanted to be a dairy farmer like her dad and her grandfather. So, but the, um, the amazing thing about a dairy farm is that it's such a laboratory for school. Like if you are talking about their ways to apply math, chemistry, um, genetics, uh, you know, she looked at soil chemistry. She looked at the genetics of the herd. She looked at geometry to use, you know, to figure out how to, you know, work crop, uh, the grazing rotation. So there are ways to say, okay, well, my kid is obsessed with space or dinosaurs. So let's just figure out some way to make some of this learning as relevant as possible to dinosaurs or space or a dairy farm or healing crystals or whatever. Um, and can you do it all the time? No. And it's harder to do right now, especially that museums are closed. Like one of the things you can do when museums start to open up is to say, and, and actually right now, many people at museums who handle um, curriculum, adapting to curriculum, uh, they actually are still at work. You can email like a children's museum. Uh, I know the Duseum in San Antonio does this because I was down there and got to see it. If you call them up or you email them, the person in, char in charge of like emotional or sorry, educational liaison and say, do you have a lesson on fractions? Um, because my kid is having a really hard time understanding fractions, and I'm trying to think of ways to link it to the real world, chances are they're going to say, oh my gosh, yes, we have 10 lessons on adapting uh, fractions to the real world. And although you can't come to our, our museum right now, let me tell you a couple of ways to do that. And it could be as simple as tomorrow morning, we're going to make pancakes and I'm going to hide the cup measure and only have the third and the quarter and the half cup measure available and say to the kid, look, we're missing the cup measure, but that's okay. We can still figure this out. We need two cups of flour. How else can we do that? There are ways to make that learning relevant to day-to-day -day life or to the things that are important to our kids. It's all about learning um, through engagement and relevance. And no one knows what is relevant to our kids better than us if we are listening. So listen, 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 listen. Let your kids know that you really do care about what they care about and then find ways to make learning applicable to that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. This re reminds me a lot of what we talked about on the podcast episode that we had on home learning that she talked a lot about sort of mm -hmm. project-based learning and, and using yeah. what your kids are interested in to sort of pull out lessons from history yeah. or lessons from math or, or you know, like yeah. reading and, and that that's a way to engage your kids. And I think that and, and ride that wave because when kids get obsessed with something like space or dinosaurs or whatever, that's going to be your way in for a while, actually. And uh, that was also how I encouraged the students at the rehab who often were really reluctant readers, often because they either had dyslexia or they had never been encouraged to do that or they'd been told they're stupid. And so they thought that they were stupid and they had internalized that. Um, my way in was always to say, OK, well, let's not talk about reading for a second. You've said you don't read. What are you interested in? Like, what do you love? And this one example I give a lot is this one kid who said he does not read, period, doesn't like it, doesn't want to do it. And the, he doesn't care about anything. <laughs> and he was obviously not interested in having a relationship with me either as his teacher. <laughs> but um, finally, he admitted that the only thing he cares about is his pit bull. And I went out and found this beautiful book called the pit bull on the history of the breed, um, on, you know, the bad rap the breed gets. And it was a beautiful, wonderful book that I recommend all the time, just because it's a gorgeous book. And he read that entire book. It was like a 350 page book and it took him 
ages. But he read an entire book when he said there was absolutely no way that he was going to read. And it was because I took the time to listen to him, get to know him and find out what he cared about. And I used what he cared about as a way in to catch his attention. And by the way, he didn't just read it because I handed it to him. He still said he wasn't going to read it, but I put it on the shelf and it was there when he chose to make it his decision to read it. Yeah. So um, I'm remembering that you talked about this on your episode with Dax Shepard. And the reason I'm bringing that up is one of the other tips that you give in your book is to model like taking risks and for goals that may or may not be out of reach. You may fail, like model stepping out of your own comfort zone. And I just thought, I I hope it's okay for me to like put you on the spot. I thought it was so terrific that like you were talking very openly that you really wanted to go on that show and you were getting turned down. I'm not sure you were getting turned down, but you just weren't getting a response. And it was kind of frustrating. And ultimately you did get on, which is terrific, but you, it took me two years. Yeah. And years and repeated, repeated efforts. Yeah. Yeah. And I just thought that was such a good example of you walking the walk of being willing to take a risk, being willing to sort of fall on your face, even publicly. And that that's something that we as parents need to do for our kids. We need to say like, hey, I might mess up too. Or hey, I did yeah. mess up and I embarrassed myself. And that's okay because I also learned we can right. do this, right? It's uncomfortable, well, what, but it's important. What was interesting during that whole effort. In fact, I'm going through it right now because I have a book coming out in April. And so you start planning PR and marketing and stuff way out. Um, so I'm actually planning what's going to happen when that book comes out now. And I have a couple of reach items that I've been talking about with my publicist and I'm talking about them in front of my kids. And there have been a couple where my kids are like, yeah, right. Like that's going to happen. So they know that I have these things that it is going to be, it's going to be upsetting for me if they don't happen, but you know, you can't have every, you don't get everything you want. You don't do everything perfectly. So for me, what's even more important than me taking risks myself is that I share that with my kids. So let's say my goal is to be published in a certain, there was a magazine called Creative Nonfiction that was a big goal for me to be published in. And it took me a while and I had to write just the right thing because they tend to write on these themes. And I talked about it while I was trying and I talked about it when I got rejected and I talked about what I was going to change based on the editor's feedback on why I got rejected. If you were lucky enough to get the feedback. Um, and so when it finally happened, my kids knew what a big deal that was for me. And that also is me modeling for them that, you know, so it's, it's not like we can keep from them all the things. Cause by the way, if that whole like fallacy of your parents are perfect, don't, you know, don't let them in on the secret that your parents are actually imperfect. They know we're not perfect. So letting <laughs> them in on the stuff that we screw up is really important because if you screw something up, you can say to your kid, look, I screwed this thing up. What do you think I should do? And that actually brings them into a conversation about learning how they can learn from your mistakes, not because you just told them how to do it differently but because they saw you struggle with that thing. So we talk about screw ups all the time at our house. Well, and I love the point too, that what part of what you talk about is learning from the screw ups. And I was just remembering that recently I went for a walk with my family. We live near the Charles River because we're Mm -hmm. in the Boston area and we were watching a couple in a canoe and they were we're not doing a good job. They were going too fast and they kept like turning into the shore. (laughs) Yeah. And my husband, who's, he's very process oriented. He doesn't really worry about the outcome and it's such a great way to parent. And I really admire it because sometimes I get a little too hooked on the outcomes, but he said, (laughs) boys were watching and he said, you know, 
here's something to learn that we're all going to like bump into the shore. But and that's that's not the problem. The, the, The problem is if you don't stop and say, hmm, something's going wrong. Right. Right. Let me think about why I keep bumping into the short. Let me pause and try mm-hmm. something different. And maybe the different thing doesn't work the first time, but maybe I try a yeah. third different thing and maybe that'll work better. That there's some, there's like a, a lesson in the, mis- there's a number of lessons in making mistakes that yeah. are really useful for our kids. Not just that making mistakes isn't something to be ashamed of, but that that is how we learn. And there are certain strategies that we can employ that will help us learn even better. There's, I got so, I was so fortunate. I was asked to be a part of a television show. And first thing I said was like, absolutely no way. I would not be a part of a television show because why would I want to create more screen time for kids? But the person who asked me to do it was one of the creators of Blue's Clues, Alice Wilder. And she talked me into it because this show that I got to, I created the curriculum for this show called The Stinky and Dirty Show on Amazon Prime. And it's based on sort of the thinking behind the gift of failure. And the entire show is stinky and dirty, um, a digger and a dump truck. And they, it's based on books, these fantastic books. Um, And it's really about these two machines that think like preschoolers and are, are, they think sort of at the preschool level and they are faced with certain tasks like, oh, all the bowling balls fell out of this truck, but they have to get to the bowling alley in Go City down over there. How can we get those bowling balls from here to there? And over the course of the you know 12 minute episode, uh, Stinky and Dirty are going to make a whole bunch of mistakes. And yet those mistakes, what is in, what happens with each of those mistakes is they figure out what to take forward with them, what's promising about that particular iteration and what didn't work at all and maybe they should take away. So li- like, for example, if they have to get something heavy from the bottom of the hill to the top of the hill, one of the early ideas is, you know, wait for the moon to come up and then we'll throw a rope around the moon and the moon will lift this heavy thing up the hill um, because we have a rope because it was in, it was in Stinky's, the back of Stinky's hopper. And they try it and that doesn't work, obviously. And they're able to say, okay, well, the moon thing didn't seem to work, but this rope seems to have some promise. So what can we do with this rope that doesn't involve the moon? Let's move on from that and try something else. And that's what Stinky and Dirty Show does is it's this, and optimally, we want the kids to watch with the parents because there's a lot of talking with the kids that seems to happen and visual cues that we are built into the show so that they can see like when they're thinking about why they can't use the moon and maybe why something would work better. Cranky the crane is sort of in the back of the shot um, behind Stinky. So they're like, we give a visual hint for the kid to think about what might work better than the moon. And it's there in the background. So it was a real treat for me to work on that show because the entire show is about how do we help kids? How do we help them with their resilience and perseverance and not feeling bad about themselves when they make mistakes, knowing that that's part of the process of getting to the end result? Yeah. Process over product, as you said. If we can focus, I mean, the takeaways for my speak engagements are always focus more on the process and less on the product. And remember that this is a long-term game. I mean, parenting is a long haul job, not one that is determined in those small emergencies that we have every day where we screw up. That's, and our kids screw up. That's not how we evaluate our parent to parenting. We evaluate it over the long term, not the short term. Yeah. I love that summary. There's so much wisdom that you offer for parents and for living more successfully ourselves. I mean, honestly, I think that a lot of the lessons that we're trying to teach kids are ones that we need to adopt more. Um, And we didn't even have time to talk about mindset, Carol Dweck's mindset. (laughs) 
We'll have to do a whole other episode yes, just on that stuff. <laughs> um, but I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your time and your wisdom with us and we'll link to your book and the podcast and your masterclass and the resources that you shared. Maybe we'll just even link to your uh, bibliography that you have through your website. You can make it available from your website. All right. yep. Okay. Well, thank you so very much. I really you are so it. welcome. So welcome. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our interns, Dr. Catherine Foley-Saldania and Dr. Katie Lear. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.